Welcome to EG Property Podcast. I'm Akanksha Soni, the residential reporter at EG. In this EG Podcast, in collaboration with JLL, we will be exploring the co-living trend. We are joined with JLL's Head of Living Capital Markets, Simon Scott, Adina David, the Executive Director of MGT Investment, Charlie Gaynor, Managing Partner and Co-Founder of Reshape Living, and Jonathan Lacey, Head of Acquisitions at Watkin Jones. Where is co-living currently in its evolution as a sector? Simon, you want to start us off? I think it's fair to say still early days. I mean, I think it was, if we go back sort of pre-pandemic, the momentum was definitely building. And then Charlie, I'm sure that will add to this from an operational perspective, but I think there was a sort of apprehension around sort of tight spaces in the environment that we had to work through. And I think that certainly raised a little bit of scepticism. I've certainly heard reports that, in fact, the complete polar opposite from an operational perspective was the reality of life. Looking ahead, I think we're back into momentum building again, putting aside all the challenges of the financial environment in which we're working and pricing uncertainty and marking to market and all those sorts of things in in what is still very much an emerging sector. But I think as an asset class, as a specific asset class, I think there's so many influences that we can take from more mature sectors from a capital markets perspective principally student but obviously the overlap I think we often talk about the sort of Venn diagram of where built to rent overlaps with students and the differences and similarities between those two sectors in a co-living environment so I'd like to think that this time around this is the time where the co-living market will really start and Charlie would you like to speak from an operational perspective just directly responding to that first question, I think the sector is in a really strong place. I think that from where perception was of co-living pre-pandemic and sort of first movers in the sector, there's now really great data coming through of how these assets are performing. And you're seeing second generation products come through, which is moving the dial in terms of the product and where there was some issues with things like room sizes and the quality of design and amenities. There was some inexperienced operators in the space. And so I think as, as more of these assets come through the pipeline, it's giving investors a lot of confidence being able to walk through these spaces and get a, a better understanding of where Codeven can have a, an impact and, and the gap of the market that it's addressing. In terms of operational beds in the sector, it's still fairly limited. We've been working with a private equity fund called Cross Street Capital and acquired a hotel asset that we repositioned and acquired from Watkin Jones actually, so that was a, an asset we bought on perhaps for completion and uh, it worked really well for us because of the, the size of the rooms and the back house space that we no longer required that we could convert to amenities. And I think there's a lot greater understanding of how co-living operations works now. There's a lot of property managers that are kind of diversifying from PBSA or BTR into the sector. And there's some strong asset managers there also that can guide funds who have interest in, in owning, owning and operating co-living assets. It's definitely had its challenges in terms of inflation and it's still very much a new sector, so everyone is learning as they, as they go along. I think with regards to how you sort of manage these assets and the technology that, that's used, ESG frameworks that are applied to co-living buildings, that's still you know, a lot of learnings that are happening. We found it really challenging on the technology side to invest and build new systems that are directly for co-living. But I think there's a lot of confidence growing. The assets are performing extremely well. Our Wembley site is sort of 100% occupied now, and we're seeing other co-living assets with funds that have performed, you know, leased up within sort of three to six months, and a lot of rental growth that's obviously inflation linked. And so, I think the the sector is in a strong place, and there's increasing demand. 
And because co-living is such a new sector and there is a lot of interconnectivity between all the living sectors, BTR, PBSA, co-living, now single-family housing, so where does co-living sit within the living sectors right now? Jonathan, what endurances across all of them? So Yeah, so we focus across the kind of wider residential for rent space, mm-hmm. which includes all of those asset classes. Our view is that you've got PBSA, BTR as kind of uh, leaders within the residential for rent and co-living sits kind of just be- just behind those. I think the size of the target market that you've got within co-living is always going to be slightly smaller, so it's going to be slightly smaller as a sector than where PBSA and and BTR have got to. But from an investor perspective, it's generally the same sets of investors that are focusing on co-living as they are on PBSA and BTR. I think just touching on some of the points that that Charlie made just then as well around, you know, how the operational side of things has grown and how that pipeline has grown, that's helped to greater understanding amongst local authorities. So where you've had challenges in some of the regional markets over the last couple of years, that's now started to move on. So Birmingham has now got an SPD, which is expressly talking about co-living and some of the design standards that they have. Leeds are working on their own one at the moment, which is due to come in soon. So that's going to help to further expand it. And I think that is shown in the growth in the pipeline that there is from a planning perspective. So you've currently got in excess of 20,000 co-living units within the pipeline, which is, you know, four or five times the amount that is currently operational. And Adina? I was actually going to say I kind of disagree with the market opportunity point. I think there are a lot of single-person households in cities, and they need places to live. I mean, we all need places to live, but they are finding it really difficult to find affordable or attainable homes and I think co-living can provide a really great solution to this and you know I've been around co-living from its somewhat early days working with Charlie at the collective a few years back and going to Graystar for a more global perspective on how this alternative living sector was evolving and not just co-living but the short stay model as well which co-living in the UK sometimes utilizes I do feel really optimistic about the sector. I think, you know, we've all sort of said it, it's evolved a lot over the last few years and it's really kind of demonstrated that the fundamentals for it are really strong. The opportunity is pretty big and quite a compelling investment story. I mean, right now, in our view, given where base rate is, we're finding co-living one of the most attractive asset classes to go into from a development standpoint. And specifically, we've been looking at office to co-living conversions as offices are hurting across the board, and especially around London. So I'm very excited about the sector. I, I love where it's going. I think as investors, we feel more confident about it, given that I think there are 7,200 consented units in London currently, roughly, call it 8,000, close to 10. <laughs> so it's giving us more comfort that there are a lot of schemes that can come forward and the market can only grow and improve. So I love the opportunity. Following the issues that the collective faced, how has that shaped the co-living market as it is right now? I think we all learned a lot of lessons as market from everything that the collective did right. And it's, it's always difficult when you're a pioneer in any space to, to get things right the first time around, I think. But it certainly showed that the demand for the product was there and the operational model worked. Actually, it's a great product that is needed in the market and a good investment opportunity for those who are kind of willing to go into it and 
why wouldn't you when retention has been strong in terms of residents staying and renewing and living in in the buildings it's i think a positive story even if you know the company who pioneered it isn't necessarily around the folks who were part of that took away really important lessons and the community that were created by the collective are still open and around even if they're not under that brand anymore so it's a good story and i uh, i don't think it affected the industry or the segment negatively just coming in on that I, I think there were certainly a few local authorities that assumed that was all it was and i think there's been a lot of conversation i know adina you and i have spoken around how local authorities have shifted around what the minimum floor area should look like in terms of an individual room pd's always had a, a sort of reputation for being rabbit hutches I think that's a key thing that I I would take away from lessons learned and certainly talking to a lot of the team from the collective. They effectively inherited a student scheme and morphed it into a co-living opportunity. So I think it would be entirely unfair. I think, as as Adina's alluded to, it generated a lot of evidence. And I think the key evidence that I still believe there are a lot of local authorities, and again, keen to hear from the guys on the ground in terms of their exposure to various local authorities that still don't get it and the demand Mm -hmm. that is there for this product and unless we create more opportunity the challenges in the rental market are going to continue co-living isn't the answer for everything but it is absolutely part of the answer in my view in terms of creating to Adina's point earlier opportunities for single family households to actually get their get a home and certainly I've had sort of first-hand experience student scheme actually when I was at Watkin Jones 18 square meter studio in Kingston city center a nurse coming in and was devastated when she couldn't actually buy one of the units they were restricted to student use but the sort of preconceived notion that small is not right actually at certain points that independence the proximity that was the key thing that I took away from the conversation that I had with her. Her perception was it was going to enable her to get a foot on the housing ladder. It was the proximity to the hospital and all the amenity that went around it and the safety and security that that scheme offered. That's really what resonated. And that's probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And the market conditions, in my view, particularly in London and the Southeast, have only got worse. So I think we've definitely got to see more of this product come through to give, I think, local authorities confidence and see as charlie said certainly we've we've looked at a lot of cash flows from operational assets over the last few years and consistently they're well up into the 90s and the rental have continued to grow and i've often talked about it as a sort of affordable sort of housing tenure but actually for a lot of communities it still remains unaffordable because because the demand is so great so we've got to get more in my opinion we've got to get more of this product into the market and that furthermore will I think drive uh, the 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 equity interest into the space as well because certainly that's a conversation I have with a lot of new equity looking at the sector is it's how scalable it is and I think there's there's a disconnect in terms of the way that the PBSA market has matured where I think co-living could get to and we need to build that scale to get that wave of core capital into the co-living space and is single person households the main target audience of both your jonathan and charlie yeah i would say that mm-hmm. it is i know from experience kind of in the last couple of weeks down on our scheme in, in exeter called the gorge 
of the kind of prelets that we've had to so about 15% prelet yeah the majority of those have been single family and there's been a couple of couples so the vast majority of it has been kind of yeah sing- single occupancy households Alex? yeah I would, I would concur with that we're targeting predominantly single occupancy young professionals between the ages of 18 up to 35 we do have a cohort of students that, that live in our building we have about 25 percent are actually over the age of of 35 so it, it does also cater to slightly older audience that maybe are kind of using it as a pied de terre or, or mo- moving between spaces and i think there's previously been a perception that we're, we're mostly targeting foreign residents we have we actually have quite a lot that are from the uk um so maybe about sort of 40 percent i think obviously what, what we're addressing with that audience is this level of convenience where they've, they've grown up in an environment of having everything tech enabled and on demand um, and, and ease of use as well as flexibility. So I think that's obviously one of the big uh, differentiators to, to build to rent. Actually in our Wembley building, you can stay from uh, a night up to 12 months, but more traditional co-living that we're working on under a generous use class would be from three to 12 months. So I think that's a huge benefit where you've got that, that flexibility, you're not having to put down a deposit and you can obviously move in much quicker than if you're running around trying to find PRS stock with it working with landlords, it could take sort of, you know, two to three months. It's more a sort of hospitality light iteration, isn't it, really, mm. in terms of that flexibility of the, the accommodation model, letting model. On the occupancy point, I think some local authorities and maybe the GLA were also trying to put a restriction around how many people can live in a unit. So it is primarily f- meant to be for singles, but I think there's an opportunity to look at co-living as an answer for single parents. And I know there are some companies in Europe looking at this model specifically. But I do think also, depending on the room size, they work great for couples. uh, And I think we've seen that in operational assets. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in terms of demographics, I think the the key point here is that we've seen a delay in people settling down, getting married and having children. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's been growing demand for single occupancy. We do cater to couples, so our larger studios that go up to sort of 27 to 29 square meters, obviously there's a big financial benefit if you're sharing one of those studios. To give you a bit of context on what we actually provide in those studios, we will always have kitchenettes and then uh, an ensuite. And obviously co-living as a concept is ultimately densifying the space in which we're living in, so uh, our standard studios are around 20 square meters, so it's uh, very much targeting single occupancy. And from an investment perspective, where are the opportunities right now in co-living? Simon, I'll start with you on the capital markets side. Few and far between. <laughs> Not enough. I mean, that's that's the point, really. I think they're coming. In terms of investment opportunity, um, the team, I'm sure, will be delighted to hear it. My, my perception of it is that they're being slightly mispriced at the moment because I think going back to Adina's point earlier, uh, purpose-built student accommodation is restricted to full-time students. Whereas actually, from a co-living perspective, you can let it to anyone. And that sort of pricing differential, because everyone's so familiar with the way that the PBSA model works and the scale of opportunity within that space, from my experience, you're actually getting the inverted cap rate put to where you would expect it to be. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. when we took on the instruction for the shareholder group on the original disposal of the of the collective and hadn't sold one of these things before, so we were quite honest, hands up in the air, we don't know. But our view is if you took the markers around built to rent at one level and you took a marker at PBSA at the moment, our job was trying to get it at a better yield than 
the student because it looks and feels a bit more like built to rent than student because of the restricted occupancy. I don't think that's being priced in at the moment. So, and as, as I say, I think principally that's that's barriers to scale and the right sort of capital coming in. So it's all about building that scale, building that demonstrable track record, training history, demand profiling. And, and again, I think picking up Charlie's point around a bit like built to rent 18 to 35 was always considered to be the target audience but you talk to all the major operators and that that lifespan is much much bigger i, I had a german um developer in who were basically targeting over 55s in a co-living concept so it's just pitching your your asset in 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 the right place i think but for me that just demonstrates the depth of demand across all demographics really and as for single developments within co-living, there's a lot of repositioned assets coming on the market. And you've all worked on repositioned assets in some form or the other. So, Adina, you were talking about Office to Resi a while ago. We're looking at it very actively, looking at that space, because we we found that the yield, going in yield, is quite attractive compared to almost anything else you can really build right now. Uh, and we're quite southeast UK focused, so we're not really going to other regions where you might find um, more interesting opportunities in the wider build to rent space. But we think there's an interesting opportunity in the office to co-living conversion area. ESG wise, you are keeping the bones of an existing building, trying not to knock it down. And uh, the offices that are losing tenants are older stock that was actually quite well laid out <laughs> in terms of the floor plates. and lend themselves nicely to the co-living units that we're targeting. So I think uh, it's a really interesting opportunity. You could save a little bit on the build cost as well by retaining the structure. And they're typically in pretty good, well-connected locations. Now PD is not really applicable for the scale that we're looking at. So it does mean we're going for a full planning application and the quality of the build therefore and the product uh, will be very different in my view, as almost like a new build. So we're really excited about that opportunity. But again, we are looking at other types of developments in the co-living sectors and not just conversions necessarily, but I think that's a, a really compelling story right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that. We're focusing on yeah two areas of co-living. One is we are looking at new build opportunities where, where we can see them, but the current live opportunities that we're working on are office conversions. We've got one in planning at the moment. The key bit that Adina mentioned there is making sure that the, the building that you're they're looking at actually works and converts into appropriate spaces, not just for units and making sure the windows are in the right places, etc., but also for uh, the amenity spaces and making sure you've got active amenity spaces. There's no point putting in lots of this space if it's hidden in a dark corner somewhere that's never going to be used. So there's challenges with it, but I certainly think it's definitely a good growth area for the space. Yeah, I mean, I just add, I mean, at Reshape, we, we've been mostly focusing on repositioning hotels because they obviously lend themselves to our co-living brand standards where if the room size are large enough, we can then come in and you know, provide kitchenettes in the, in the rooms and then convert what was, you know, back of house space used for linen storage or cleaning equipment, convert that to amenities. So that's what we've done at Wembley and we're looking at lots of other opportunities there. It is challenging given how well performing the hotel market is there's not a lot of trading going on a lot of it's owned by you know f family offices or you know owner operators that have been holding hotel stock for a long time so 
that it has its challenges and, and I think that therefore looking at officers conversions is sort of a natural way to or a natural place to lean into given that there's going to be a lot of redundant stock in good locations it's not without its challenges though because every local authority wants to, to know that there's definitely no demand for the office space and then yeah if you are competing with PBSA developers or, or student developers or hotel developers it's that much more challenging. So you've got to find the perfect spot where hotel and student are not going to be supported, but co-living will because it's seen more as a housing type rather than a transitional or you know student spot. So it's an exciting time. <laughs> and co-living also gives a lot of importance on the S in ESG. So mm -hmm. how is co-living providing social mobility and real social value? Well, I think in multiple different ways. Yeah, w one of the key ways is the, the affordable element of, of the product it allows people to get their own own unit, which they may or may not be able to afford in BTR, possibly as a getting on a kind of rung before they get into the sales market as well. But also in terms of kind of more general social value with the local area. I know down in Exeter, we've been talking and working with local businesses, hairdressers and yoga instructors and things like that to get them into the building providing discounted services to the occupiers but also generating much wider kind of social value to those local businesses and then clearly the, the amenity space that's provided within these buildings is a key part of the kind of social interaction that people living within the buildings are going there for in the first place. I think there's been a lot of talk relating to co-living, relating it to the loneliness epidemic and how living in co-living communities can help alleviate some of that and I think you know, it only became worse during the pandemic with folks being isolated from others and being able to live in a community where you have a built-in social bubble has been greatly beneficial. And I know from my time at the collective and speaking to many other operators more recently, people move into these communities for the lifestyle and being able to you know, connect quickly with others, especially if they're like new to a city or newly single or whatever it is, getting access to that community interaction really quickly has been really beneficial to many. And it's often cited as a reason for moving into co-living communities. And that, I was mentioned it earlier, I think that thing around creating households that we heard so much about during the pandemic, that's exactly what I mm -hmm. heard a lot of with operators that had to work through that and that, that sort of well-being mm -hmm. support in an environment that none of us were familiar with I think was really key and I think really for me some of those sort of anecdotal stories around what is being promoted by the operators as being so key to their offer that came out loud and clear and actually I've been fortunate to have seen quite a few of these schemes over the years and when you talk to residents that generally comes through loud and clear. So If I can just add from, from our experience on our scheme at Wembley we are very proactive on that social side and I think that's where co-living sort of differentiates slightly from, from built to rent, which do provide amenities, but with regards to how we're seeing operators actively engage the residents and, and, and bring them together through you know, cultural programming and design the spaces very intentionally to you know, encourage interaction. I think that, that co-living is really leading the way in the living sector um, and how we're seeing some of that kind of event programming and use of technology and design. We also are very active in engaging the local community. So within Wembley, we work closely with the Young Brent Foundation. So they have access to all of our ground floor space, which is really helpful when they're, they're having events and also helps in terms of just 
getting these councils up to speed on what clothing is and their understanding of the concept. We hold back a, a number of rooms for them at discounted price, as well as we work with lots of charities and initiatives. We work with a domestic violence abuse charity. We hold back a, a number of rooms for them um, in case of emergencies. So, um, and obviously just inherently the product, that, you know, that, that these spaces are shared buildings. You know, I stayed in our building um, a month or so ago and just being in the communal kitchen and watching people converse over you know when they're doing their cooking and introducing themselves is a huge benefit but i think to clarify you know the, the, the idea of community and it, it often gets banded around by all of the developers this kind of you know value to, to what they're offering but i think that it needs to be done in quite an authentic way which doesn't feel forced and i think it often just happens naturally by the nature of people living together in, in sort of a densely confined space yeah I mean, I, I'm, again we were chatting earlier about when you could point to the origination of co-living as an asset class i certainly remember a couple of decades back actually working with an ing supported business called springboard urban and they basically recognized um, a real opportunity in the market particularly for the big accountancy firms big legal firms taking in graduates from across the country trying to find housing going back 20 years or so ago real struggles in a new city didn't understand with people they didn't know and they basically bought hostels that they created a co-living vibe and it was destined to do exactly what it said on the tin it was a springboard into an urban environment where you create those little clusters that those social groups that effectively formulated where pbsa created cluster frats from so you had that sort of sharing environment that enabled people to go out into a more I suppose a more comfortable environment into the broader private rented sector so this whole dynamic around um, that sort of social integration has, has been around for a while and again sort of people often say well the rooms are too small or whatever but actually you look at key worker accommodation you look at police section houses and the communities from which those residents are coming I mean it's it's been a while it's been around for a while it's just being innovated into a more modern environment that's the way I look at it I think in comparison to build to rent though if you're particularly if you're moving to a city like London and you don't know anyone you're living in a one bed where you've got minimum space standards 37 square meters so you've got a lot of that you're ultimately with co-living taking that 10 to 15 square meters and reprovide it into the building with amenities and services and I think you know from people from my experience of living in other cities and renting for one beds you sort of close the door at the end of the day and it's quite a lonely experience Co-living gives you the, the benefit of both having your own private studio or my definition of co-living where you'd have a private studio with a kitchen and ensuite, but then you also have that ability in the evenings to engage in an event and just have those chance and encounters by meeting other people in the building. Completely agree. And how do you see co-living shaping up in the next decade? Hopefully more of it. Hopefully a better recognition of it as a sector. I mean, I think putting purpose-built student accommodation to one side I think that whole thing around the professionalization of the private rented sector and and the diversity of offer that should come through living assets I think that's what we're going to continue to see I mean the pressure on mom-and-pop landlords in the broader private rented sector I don't think is going away anytime soon the legislative challenges the financial challenges I, I just think we're starting to really make those big steps into institutional landlords in terms of rental accommodation in the UK. And I, I think that can only be a really good thing. So that, that would be my prediction for the next five or 10 years. I think that we're, we're already seeing it. We're starting to see 
living asset classes as being the, the largest sector of the real estate capital markets environment. See it in the States. We're catching up in the UK. I can only see that going pan-euro as well. So co-living has a place in that story, I think. Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I'd agree with that. You, you look at the kind of overall kind of core target market UK-wise, which I think Savills has said is broadly 725,000 pe people. There's only 25,000 units either built or within the pipeline at the moment. So maybe covering 3.5% of the total so far. Um, and then you look at what capital is aligned with the sector, whether it's existing BTR or PBSA investors looking to expand or new entrants that are looking to come and do specific co-living um, plays, I think. Yeah, over the next 10 years, I think we'll see significant growth within the sector. Adina? I think investors are are sold on the asset class and would love more of it. And, uh, you know, it is an exciting space that has proven itself out. Now, the biggest hurdle, in my view, remains the planning system and getting that to make sense, <laughs> <laughs> um, just you know, be a bit more predictable uh, across the board. I think it's there's still a lot of risk that we see in that, and uh, of course, we try to work with people who know what they're doing around that. But it's it's so unpredictable right now, and it, it's so it it just shifts all the time uh, that it shouldn't be that difficult. This is uh, housing, uh, and we know people want to live in this product. There are great examples of it. There are you know, just professional management teams around that are operating this product. It shouldn't be so hard to get schemes approved because they do answer a big, big need for Londoners and Brits and others everywhere. So let's get it together. Charlie? I think as more capital comes into the sector, we'll see the offering of co-living really sort of institutionalized and we'll see better quality operations and product and I think certainly it's there's still a lot of lessons being had in things like operations where sort of gross to net, net opex margins are quite high still and we'll see lots of different uh, definitions and approaches to co-living but with a, a layer of, of branding and, and service over them with, with varying degrees of, of service. And I think as more stock comes through and investors get more comfortable and uh, there's, there's general consumer demand. I, I think that planning ultimately is going to have to ease and, and really accept co-living as a housing mix. I don't think rent controls will come into place because you'd like to to think that there's enough logic and reason within the government to understand that that's, that's not going to help. So things like rental growth that we're seeing at the moment. And so I think ultimately it's going to come down to increased supply of which you know, over the next couple of years, given where um, liquidity isn't in the market at the moment and, and the lack of investment going into housing I think that's only going to get increasingly more challenging um, and so you would like to think that things like affordable housing within co-living is going to become a lot clearer and encourage acceleration of supply for co-living because at the moment it's, it's very challenging where you know you're sort of left with a huge variable on what could be an affordable housing payment if you're going down the, the payment and new route and, and that is you know, almost impossible to fund so uh, you, you're left with sort of little alternative but to provide on site c3 and, and and that's not possible often on on site so um, I think the planning system needs to to clearly address the emergence of co-living and there is a lot of work being done to do that a reshape is actually working directly with the GLA 
um, and we've set up a, a, a group called the Share Living Consortium, which has sort of 90 different developers, operators, investors in that forum that are working closely with the GLA on their um, emerging shared living policy and trying to collectively present to them the data of how these the existing operational assets are performing because a lot of their sort of views of what, what co-living should be and how they should be built are, I think, somewhat arbitrary at times um, and probably based on what, what, what sort of first-generation product was with, with the collective. I think that's now sort of has evolved. And so we're just really trying to work collaboratively with the planning authorities so that they can have a better understanding of co-living and, and really get behind providing the increase in the supply. Thank you to all our guests for joining us. As all our listeners have heard, co-living is definitely going to be a very interesting asset class in the next decade. You've been listening to an EG Property Podcast. Thank you. Thank you.